We're going to start off in verse 1. You can read along by looking at the screen. If you have your Bibles, you can pull those out of your phones as well. Jesus, in his words to his disciples, he says, let not your hearts be troubled. Let me hear you say the word trouble. We went through this last week. We're going to go through it again. This is part two because we didn't really get to finish up more than one and a half points last week. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Listen to his words here. In my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, listen to this church, I will come again and will take you to myself. And where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I'm going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, read this with me now out loud if you would. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Would you pray with me this morning? Father, as we prepare our hearts to receive your word today, we claim exactly that that it is your word given to us under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, written down by the hand of man, but God's word nonetheless. We believe in the authoritative means of, the, of, of scripture. We believe in the Bible that it is true, that it is inerrant, that it is infallible. We believe in you, God that you are the only God, the one true God, the maker of all that we know, that you rule and reign sovereign and supreme. We believe and declare that we believe in Jesus Christ, who is your son, equally God, sent into this world to put on flesh and bone and blood, to walk in our shoes, to die for us, to die for the glory of God the Father, to the glory of God the Father, and rise again from the dead, to conquer death, to give us hope. This is the gospel, and we adhere to it, Father. We believe in the Holy Spirit, who is equally God, who takes up residence inside of any who would claim to follow and claim to believe in Jesus, who helps us to understand this authoritative word from you, where your church a group of people who are working to be more like Jesus Christ, to be sanctified, striving to be righteous and holy in our failings and our shortcomings. We encourage one another. We pick one another up. We, we carry one another's burdens. We come together to make much of Jesus, to celebrate his name, to worship him, but also to be challenged and to grow by the teaching of your word. May it be done faithfully today. We love you in Jesus' name, amen. With your eyes closed and your heads bowed, I'm gonna encourage you right now to prepare your hearts for this next section of our worship experience, our worship service, which is the worship through the teaching of God's word. Take everything that's going on, put it to the side. Open up your hearts and your minds and your hands to Jesus right now. Right now, just get centered before the Lord right now.
Father, we do come before you today asking that your spirit would work and move freely. And God, that we would respond to your word appropriately. Give us ears to hear, give us eyes to see what it is that you're calling us to today. In Jesus' name. And as a church, we all said, amen. amen. Why don't you turn and shake somebody's hand, welcome them to church today. Good morning, church. It's good to see you guys. You guys feeling good? You doing well? Yes. Super Bowl Sunday, classically the lowest attended uh, Sunday of the year apart from Memorial Day. So I'm glad that you are here, especially, especially if, you're a, if you're a Bengals fan. This is a once-in-a-lifetime event. And for you to not be at home preparing with your Tostitos means a lot to me personally. So thank you very much for coming. Somebody pointed out that I wore Rams colors today. That is not in, like, I did not do that intentionally. It might be a sign from God, but either way, I don't know. Uh, we're definitely rooting for our, our, our home state team today. Hey, we're going to jump right in today, and I'm going to encourage you to take notes just like I do every Sunday. We're a church that worships in spirit and in, and in truth. If you don't know that, we say that often. We're a church that worships in spirit and in truth. So we love to gather together. We love to worship. We love to sing and celebrate the name of Jesus. And man, our worship, our band is, is so phenomenal in bringing us into the presence of, of Jesus Christ. I'm so thankful for Dylan and the rest of the team. Are you guys thankful for them? I really am. I, I think sometimes we can become so accustomed to what happens on a Sunday that we kind of forget just how blessed we are as a church. We're very blessed and uh, with, with, with the entire team. And that goes for our production as well, who has have, had a heck of a morning. So we're thankful for them as well. We won't clap for them. They just know it in our hearts that we care. But I'm just kidding. We can clap for them. Let's just clap for them as well. AJ and the whole team. So yeah, we're going to hit it kind of hard today, and, and like I mentioned, we're going to be in, uh, in John 14, 1 through 7 once again. Last week was part one, today is part two, uh, didn't get through everything, and I, and I really wanted to take our time walking through this. It's massively important. I think it has some very practical uh, application for us. But just to review a little bit from last week, we, we learned this, that we live in a world of trouble. Why? Because we live in a broken world. Would you agree with that? Yes? yes. All right, you got to be here with me today, church. Would you agree with that? Yes? yes? Classically, we say things like, amen. If you feel like saying amen at any point, I'm all for it. I'm here for it, 100%, okay? We live in a world of trouble because we live in a broken world world. And the reason that we live in a broken world is because of sin. Amen? We covered this last week. And so when you combine a broken world with sin, you get a broken system. And so the world that we function and live in to this day is a broken system. It's, it's one that is decaying, if you will. It is one that produces and reinforces death and separation from God in so many ways. One of the things that we talked about last week is, is deconstruction. We've been walking through this. But one of the statements that deconstruction makes, not as a movement, but as a humanistic understanding, and if that doesn't make sense to you, I would encourage you to jump back into last week because we covered that extensively. But, but deconstruction, humanism to a degree, it states that Jesus Christ is one of many. 
And what I mean by that, and what we mean by that, is that Jesus is, is the same on the shelf of all religious leaders, be it Buddha or, or Allah or Muhammad or whoever you would place, a spiritual guru, maybe even a spiritual guru of the day, that Jesus is one of many. But scripture teaches us that Jesus is not one of many, is he, church? Scripture teaches us that he is one of one. In fact, could we just declare that today? Could we get a little bit of courage and, and gusto? Maybe that's the word. Uh, I almost used the word pizzazz, but that was a little too creepy. Let's use the word gusto here. <laughs> courage, not pizzazz. Don't say it with pizzazz. Let's just say Jesus is one of one. Come on, church. Jesus is that is so massively important for us to understand because it is the proper biblical understanding of not just the person, but the position of Jesus. Jesus is one of one. In fact, in John chapter one, verse one, it says, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. Not that the word was a God, but rather that the word was God. This is Jesus Christ in the beginning with God, being God himself. And so it's very important for us to, to understand that while deconstruction, not as a movement, because it's not a movement, it's, it's more of an individual choice that we're seeing. And people deconstruct different ways, walk away from the faith in different ways, walk away from Jesus in different ways, or, or want to arrive to scripture with a list of presuppositions that they, they have decided the Bible must allow. And if the Bible does not make allowance for their presuppositions, be it their sexuality, be it their worldview, be it their, their view on finances or how uh, they go about living their purpose, if the Bible does not allow for that, then people will deconstruct. They will walk away saying, this is not for me, this is not true, and the Bible is not authoritative. And so what we're saying is scripture must first be the authority for our life. Uh, our understanding of who we are comes namely from scripture. Our understanding of who God is doesn't come from feeling, but comes from scripture. This is why it's so important for us to root ourselves in the authority of God's word. I heard somebody say this one time, and they said something to the, to the, uh, to the tune of, if I'm reading scripture and I don't like it, it's not scripture that needs to change, it's me. And I think if we can get that down deep, it will change our lives. And so these are some of the things that, that we're talking through. These are some of the things that we're just reviewing. John 14, 6, Jesus says, I'm the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life. And he means it when he says, no one, absolutely no one gets to the Father unless they go through me. And so there's a common understanding that we must just a foundational understanding that we have to begin this conversation with, which is Jesus is God. Jesus is God. Jesus is not like God. Jesus is not a form of God, but quite literally, Jesus Christ is God, made manifest in human flesh so that we could understand God even better. Scripture says that we don't have a Savior that is not able to empathize or sympathize or understand what we're walking through. Jesus Christ understands the emotions that we have. Jesus has been hungry. Jesus has been hurt. Jesus has been betrayed. When you are in a season, as we just sang about, in a valley, you can take rest in the fact that Jesus has been there before. We're not just praying to this 
omnipotent, gigantic God that we can't comprehend, but rather we have a Savior who can sympathize with us, empathize with us in our weakness because he has been in our shoes. That is an incredible fact. So with all that, let's start today. I want you to write this down. And this is the first thing and maybe the most important thing for us to write down today. It's number one, Jesus commands us to not let our hearts be troubled. I want to shift the conversation a little bit today from maybe how we read Jesus's words into how we should read Jesus's words. And this is going to be a massive shift for some of us. Oftentimes when we read scripture, we see it as the great suggestions from Christ. But it's very important for us to know that Jesus is intentional in his commands. And in verse one, where we see Jesus say, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. This is not a suggestion. This is not an encouragement. This is a command. In fact, turn to your neighbor, neighbors of the people in church that we sit next to, turn to your neighbor and say, it's a command. Do it with a little bit. Turn to the other person that you rejected the first time. Turn to them and say, it's a command. Yeah, Jesus' command to us to not let our hearts be troubled. It's not a suggestion. It's a command. And Jesus makes this statement in the imperative mood. Now you say, what is that? This is very important for us, right? The imperative mood means it's something that we are to do. It is an expectation given to us. The imperative mood is something that is, is commanded. And in the reading of scripture, it's very important for us to understand the imperative mood and, and to understand when the imperative mood is taking place and, and, and when this opposite mood is taking place the imperative and the indicative. In fact, would you just write those two words down? Imperative versus indicative. Now this, we're going to kind of nerd out on the Bible here for a minute. So those of you who are nerdy about the Bible with me, you'll like this next section. The rest of, the rest of us are going to be kind of like whatever. But just I want you to hang, hang out here because this is very important for us to understand. Because in the reading of Scripture, we must be able to delineate between the indicative and the imperative. The indicative is simply, simply a statement of fact, okay? The indicative is a statement of fact. The imperative is something that's more like a command. Uh, let me give you an example. If I had a cup of coffee and I set it down, an indicative statement is the coffee is on the table. That's an indicative. An imperative would be place the coffee on the table. Do you see the difference? One is already done and one is something that we are told to do. Uh, one is the garbage is taken out. That's an indicative. An imperative is, son, take the garbage out. <laughs> you see the two differences? And this is very important. You might be like, okay, well, what's the big deal about this? It's massively important for us. It's very important for us because many times Christians knowingly, unknowingly mishandle scripture because they do not properly distinguish between imperatives in scripture and indicatives in scripture. And oftentimes we're trying to turn indicatives into imperatives. Now, before I completely lose you in the weeds, let's get to some practical understanding of this because a classic example of this is the gospel itself. 
The gospel is the understanding that Jesus Christ, being God, came to this world, walked in our shoes, went to the cross, took our sin, died on the cross, and three days later rose again. Can we get an amen for that? Yeah? Amen. That's the gospel. That is something that has been done. Now understand here why this is important. That is something that has been done. That's not something that we are called to do. The gospel is done. The gospel took place. The death of Jesus Christ happened. The resurrection of Jesus Christ took place. That's not something you're called to do. But oftentimes what we hear are people trying to earn their salvation, in essence, adding to the gospel. And we're trying to switch an indicative with an imperative. Listen, folks, the gospel is not something you earn. The gospel is not something you can go back and be a part of. The gospel has been done. Therefore, the imperative comes from my understanding of the indicative. How I live is a reflection of my understanding of the gospel. When we get these switched, we have people trying to earn their salvation. Well, I got to earn it. I got to do enough good. I got to work harder. I got to pick up this and I got to go here and I got to do that. I can earn it. I can lose it. Those are all understandings that come when we try to flip the indicative, right, with the opposite. By the way, I know this is an issue. I know it is. Boy, one of the things I spend a lot of time doing is is talking with individuals. And, And listen, we can be theologically trained. We could have spent so much time in God's word, and we can still wrestle with our salvation. Amen? Sometimes we really feel like I need to earn my salvation. We have like maybe this running checklist of things. Have I done this? Have I done enough of this? Have I worked hard enough? Have I given enough? Have I served enough? And, and I've been waiting for a while to share maybe a little bit of an illustration about this. And it seemed very, uh, it just seemed like this would be a good time. It's kind of an offshoot, but I pray that this gives you some encouragement. For those of us who struggle with the earning of our salvation, For those of us who struggle with the losing of our salvation, I want you to understand a proper understanding of the gospel. It's what's been done, not what you can do. And the best example I can give to you is the moment of crucifixion for Jesus Christ. Now go with me there. Jesus hoisted up on this cross, two thieves, one on one side, one on the other. Remember the words of these thieves? The one thief looks at Jesus and said, hey, if you're the son of God, Why don't you get me off this cross? (laughs) Which, by the way, is a fair statement. He is suffering. He he is being crucified. This is a torturous situation. And he says, listen, if you are who you are, get me down. Save yourself and save me as well. What does the other thief say? Do you not fear God? Do you know who this is? Listen, we're being punished rightly, justly for what we've done. But this man has done nothing. And he looks to Jesus in scripture in the book of Luke and the other gospels tells us that the thief looks at Jesus and says, Jesus, remember me when you go into your kingdom. And what does Jesus say? Jesus looks at this thief and he says, today you will be with me in paradise. Now, what does that have to do with the losing, the earning, the gaining of our salvation through works? I'll tell you what. That thief never had an opportunity to be baptized. That thief never had an opportunity to serve in children's ministry. That thief never had an opportunity to take communion. 
Never had an opportunity that we even know of. It's not even, it's not even shown in scripture that he even prayed. Never went to church camp, never went to Bible college, didn't witness, didn't make disciples. For my charismatic friends, never spoke in tongues. And yet, what are we told? From the lips of Jesus, today you will be with me in paradise. That man was rightly being punished by his own words. We don't know what he had done. In the least, he is a thief. He may have been a murderer. He may have stolen things. We don't know. We just know in that moment, he says, remember me. I believe in you. And that is enough. So for those of you who struggle with your salvation, the working of it, the earning of it, stop. And these are the words of Jesus. Let not your hearts be troubled. Not some distant time in the future, but right now in this moment. Let not your hearts be troubled. It's almost like I can hear Jesus just saying, stop stressing out. And if I could echo any words to you today, those would be the words that I would echo to you today. Stop stressing out. You're like, okay, well, okay, just back up a little bit. It's not that easy. I can't. I can't stop stressing out. I can't get control of it. Sometimes I just wake up and it's overwhelming. I'm anxious all the time. I'm stressed out all the time. I've got a bunch of kids. They're going crazy. (laughs) Stop stressing out is what Jesus would say. And I understand. I get all that. And yet this is a command from Jesus. Stop. Stop. And Jesus' command demonstrates our our ability to control our emotions. Now, that's something that's a little opposite of culture, because we live in a culture where we are affirmed in allowing our emotions to control our decisions, and yet Jesus is telling us here to allow ourselves to take control of our emotions. And I want to challenge you today. Take control of your stress. Take control of your anxiety. Take control of your fear. Do not allow it to control you. Stop. Stop stressing out. Stop freaking out. Stop looking at the sky like it's falling. Don't let your hearts be troubled. You're like, well, we may be going to war. Well, the economy's going. Well, inflation. I know. Stop stressing out about it. And these aren't my words. These are the words, the teachings, the commandments of Jesus Christ, who is God. And so if God says, stop We should. Well, it's not that easy. Here's what I want you to know. Jesus will never give you a command that is impossible to keep. If Jesus gave you a command that was impossible to keep, he would be unjust and cruel. And yet scripture defines him as a good shepherd who loves his sheep, who can empathize, a high priest who can sympathize with us and our weakness. Jesus is not going to give you a command that is impossible. Jesus' command to not be troubled demonstrates that we indeed have control over our emotions. Now, we can ask, well, what's the basis of Jesus' command here? Is he going to give us anything, or am I just supposed to will it? You know, maybe if I just think hard and correct my habits and no, 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 no. Jesus gives us a strong basis for why he's saying this. And I want you to write this down. We're going to open them up a little bit. We don't have to trouble because of, write that down. We don't have to trouble because of three things. Number one, who you know. You don't have to trouble because of who you know. Well, who do you know? You know Jesus. Therefore, you know God. 
And Jesus was speaking here in a passive tone to his friends. He's reading the temperature of the room, but it plays out the same for us today. Jesus is reading the, 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 the emotional temperature, and he's realizing that people are starting to freak out, starting to stress out. And he says, stop, 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 stop. Am I not faithful? We don't have to trouble because of who we know. Who we know? Jesus. Listen, when the disciples were hungry, was Jesus not faithful in creating food? turning water into wine? When somebody was injured, was Jesus not faithful in healing them? When a friend died, was Jesus not faithful in raising them to life? Jesus is reliable. Jesus is consistent. Jesus is faithful. You don't have to trouble because of who you know. You know Jesus, who is constant, consistent, faithful in all seasons, up and down. You don't have to trouble because of who you know. Number two, you don't have to trouble because of where you're going. Look at this in John 14, verse 2. Can we put that verse up? John 14, 2. Don't be troubled because of where you're going. Jesus says, in my, let me hear you say these next two words. My father's house. Notice that Jesus refers to heaven less in a, as a geographical location and more as a relational understanding. In my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go and prepare a place for you? Now, there's a lot here to unpack just in that verse. Uh, <laughs> before, and this might be a little bit of a bummer to some of us, in older interpretations of scripture, this, this verse was interpreted, in my father's house are many mansions, but this is a very faulty interpretation. So some of you are like, man, when I get to heaven, I'm gonna be rolling up to my mansion. Understand, okay? I don't think you're going to be bummed about heaven, but, but this is more understood from a classic Jewish understanding where there would be a central tent for a husband and a wife, and as they had children, and as the children got married, they would add on rooms, add on tents to the tent. And what Jesus is saying is there is plenty of room for you in my Father's house. Listen, we can put on more rooms. Listen, there ain't no thing for my Father to put on an addition for you. And there's plenty of room. And not only that, I'm going to come back and I'm going to get you. Heaven is the promised home for those who follow Jesus. Amen. Listen to me. Why do we not have to trouble? Well, because of who you know. Number two, because of where you're going. Where are you going? Heaven. Heaven is the promised home. It's not like the questioned home. It's not like, well, maybe if I do enough on this earth or give enough to the building campaign, which I'm not saying couldn't hurt you. I'm just saying. Maybe upgrade you in a little bit. I'm just saying. No, I'm just joking. Please, I'm just kidding, okay? No, because of where you're going. Heaven, heaven is your promised home. Heaven is where it's at. And number three, why don't we have to be troubled? Because of what Jesus is working on. So number one, we don't have to trouble in this world because of who we know. Number two, we don't have to trouble in this world, quite literally, because of where we're going. And number three, we don't have to trouble in this world because of what, is, what Jesus is working on. What, what do you think Jesus is working on? Jesus says, I go to prepare a place. That's intentional. I go to prepare. I'm getting it ready. I'm getting it prepped for you. That should get us excited. Why? Well, because it means that heaven is personal personalized for you, for me, for his followers. Also, I would say this, God created the world and all that we know to be in under seven days. Jesus made this statement over 2,000 years ago. Now, 
if you will let me, I just want to talk about heaven for a moment because I think that we might have a bad understanding. I think sometimes as men, we want to be excited about heaven. And I can't speak from the perspective of a woman, namely, I've tried and it's not good. So let's just not do that, okay? When we think about heaven, classically, we think about clouds and harps and little fat baby angels floating around. And if I'm being honest, that sounds really boring to me. And we almost seem irreverent saying that. Like, ooh, don't, don't say that. Well, here's a, better, here's a better understanding. That's not heaven. That's not what heaven is. Amen. Thank you, God. That sounds like a nice weekend away. But man, that's not a place I want to be for the rest of eternity, just laying on a cloud. For some of you, like, that sounds like heaven to me. It's not. That's not. The best picture of heaven that we have is found where? In Genesis. We see the Garden of Eden. Like, we're going to be living in a garden? <laughs> This garden that God prepared, number one, it had his consistent presence where men and women walked with God face to face. His immediate presence was dwelling with them. But also beyond that, Eden, this garden was raw and wild and untamed. There's interaction with animals and, and plants. Man is called to literally cultivate the earth and to spread Eden across the world. That is a better picture of heaven. Now, I'm not saying you're going to spend the rest of eternity planting rutabagas, okay? So don't get off on that. I'm just literally saying it is a beautiful, wonderful place that we were created up out of to live in and spread and cultivate. That is the better picture. There's a new heaven and a new earth. And the city, the new Jerusalem comes down from the sky. It literally talks about this. And this is where we will dwell in oneness with God for all eternity. Amen. And you're like, okay, so what am I, like a ghost floating around a garden? No! Why do you think you're a ghost? <laughs> where did that come from? The best picture that we have of what we will look like and be like in heaven is post-resurrection's Jesus' body. Jesus is standing there, post-resurrection, and two women go to the tomb of Jesus, and they bump into Jesus, and they recognize him. And then one of the coolest and greatest lines ever, Jesus appears in his new spiritual body to the disciples. And do you remember what he says? One of the first things he says, this is one of the greatest lines in all of scripture and gives me the most joy and hope in heaven. Remember what he says? I am hungry. (laughs) I'm so serious. That means that we will eat in heaven. Now, I don't know if the Holy Spirit compensates for the carbs or not, but I am telling you, that is good news. You're not going to be a ghost floating around on a a cloud. You're not going to become a fat baby angel. Even if some of us look like it this side of heaven, what is going to take place is it's going to be literal and real, a place we can touch and feel, where we recognize one another, where we dwell with our God face to face and talk and walk and joyfully eat food and celebrate the goodness of God. And my friends, listen to me. This is the hope that will pull you from your trouble. Because regardless of what you walk through in this life, regardless of what you walk through in this world. This is not our hope. What pulls us out of trouble is who we know, where we're going, and what Jesus is working on. I love that. One last thing. I want to close with this passage in 1 Peter, practically. 
chapter 5. It's something we've spoken on before. 1 Peter chapter 5. Scripture says, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, comma, casting all your, what's that word? Anxieties, all your cares, all your trouble on him. Why? Because he cares for you. See, part of our problem is we forget who we are. Quite practically, when you humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, in essence saying, I can't do this. I can't carry this. I can't take care of this. I can't go any further. God says, I know. Recognize who you are. Recognize who I am. And the moment that we do that, what happens? Our anxieties are cast under Christ. So when Jesus says, don't let your hearts be troubled, do you know what he's saying? Stop allowing your heart to trouble you. Stop. And what does he mean by that? He means recognize who I am. Recognize what I've done for you. The indicative, the imperative. The gospel has taken place. The death, burial, and resurrection has happened. We're called to surrender to it. And when you couple a belief in God and a faith in Christ and a hope in heaven, what you have is a cocktail that will eliminate trouble from your life. Meditate, dwell, think, pray on it. Secure that, hold that, remind yourself of that. And do not let your hearts be troubled. Would you bow your heads? Father, with our eyes closed and our heads bowed, we ask that you would help us in our weakness. Lord, all of us to probably varying extents have allowed our hearts to be troubled because we have allowed the narrative of fear from a broken system and a broken world to dominate and control us no longer. We rebuke that in the name of Jesus Christ, who has given us the helper, given us the Holy Spirit. Remind us, Father, of who we know. Remind us, God, of where we are going as followers of Jesus. Remind us of what Jesus is working on, on our behalf. Let us find our rightful place under the mighty hand of God. And Father, would you take our troubles, our anxieties, and throw them on the back of Jesus Christ, who laid his life down to exchange his righteousness for our sin. You call us sons. You call us friends. You call us daughters. You call us loved, not on the basis of what we've done, but on the basis of what's been done for us. In Jesus' name.